for having me, um, and also just for being willing to have this conversation. Um, as we saw in that video, this is often really dark work, um, but from the offset, I want to share that I'm coming to you brimming with hope. Um, yeah, I've been part of this movement for the past six years, and it's been my total privilege. Um, across the past 20 years, we've seen over 90,000 people brought into freedom and millions more protected from ever being exploited in the first place. Uh, so know that as we kind of go into difficult content that um, I come full of hope because I know that the God that we worship, his whole story is about setting captives free. Um, so before I start, we're gonna, we've got another short video, I think. Is that gonna work, do we think? 50 times, and every time it gets me um, breathless at the privilege it is to be part of the movement. Um, God has always been looking to set the captive free. It's his whole story. And in this video, we saw some incredible stories of freedom. We saw the roles of investigators, of social workers, of lawyers. But what we probably didn't see is the role of the finance team doing the processing in the background, um, the church leaders and volunteers advocating, people on taking on challenges, fundraising to enable it to happen, prayer warriors faithfully praying every week, Today, an estimated 50 million people are being held in slavery globally, and one of four of these is a child in brick kilns, on lakes, in brothels, in factories, um, in the Philippines, in Ghana, in India, but also here in the UK. And these are huge and really heavy numbers and realities, aren't they? Uh, the injustice of slavery is a global issue which we could feel totally hopeless in the face of. Um, but my encouragement to you today is that God has always been looking to set the captive free and his whole story, and he invites us into it, and he's doing a remarkable, remarkable thing. So today we're going to return to a probably very familiar passage, Exodus 3, which is foundational for us at IJM for probably fairly obvious reasons, because it's all about bringing freedom. Um, but it's the point at which God calls Moses to bring freedom to a whole nation who are trapped in slavery. So I believe Brenda is going to bring our reading for us. Thank you, Brenda. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, 
Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said, Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. So God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. Um, he chooses a man with a stammer uh, whose simple job is to tend to sheep. I can say that because I'm a daughter of a sheep farmer. Um, and he sends this simple man to go to the biggest slave owner in the land, the Pharaoh. And then the rest of the book of Exodus uh, goes on to tell this freedom story. Moses bravely standing up to Pharaoh and demanding he lets God's people go, some toing and froing with some plagues, and eventually Moses leading this whole nation out of slavery. And it's a beautiful message. I'd encourage you to dive into it again in your own time at some point. All about God's heart for justice, uh, his heart to relieve people from slavery and oppression. Um, what I love about the arc of the scriptures is that what we see is that when God draws close to his people, oftenly, often the most seemingly flawed and ordinary people, extraordinary things seem to happen. And this is our experience every day at IJM, um, that as we draw close to God and God draws close to us, extraordinary things happen. So we are contracted to pray for an hour a day. Um, we stop our work and we come before the God of justice uh, to go before every rescue operation, every court trial, um, every meeting, every key speaking engagement, and just invite his power and presence to go before us, which to the business-minded is totally ridiculous. That's hundreds of thousands of hours of paid time that is being spent on prayer. And I believe it's our most precious investment because as we draw close to God and God draws close to us, extraordinary things happen. But what I love in this encounter between God and Moses is that although it's Moses that leads the charge to end slavery, uh, the story actually doesn't start here. So we're going to spend most of the time rewinding a, lit, a little bit towards the beginning of Exodus. Because here we've entered the middle of the story. We remember the highlights, the burning bush, the ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, but today I'd love to dig a little deeper and see what came before all of this. Because you see, to even get Moses to the point that he was alive and kicking and ready to hear the voice of God, there came a whole series of incredible women. 
ordinary but incredible people. A series of servants who sacrificed different members of the family of God passing on the baton. And although history books are often written about people on the center stages, often we forget about the people who came before to get them there. In 2005, Barack Obama gave an address at the funeral of a 92-year-old woman from Detroit. And he said this, he said, the woman we honor today held no public office. She wasn't a wealthy woman, didn't appear in the society pages, and yet when the history of this country is written, it is this small, quiet woman whose name will be remembered long after the names of senators and presidents have been forgotten. These are the words spoken at the funeral of Rosa Parks, who 50 years earlier had altered the course of American history through a single act of courage, refusing to give up her seat on the bus. And her arrest then triggered a 381-day boycott of the bus system led by Martin Luther King Jr., a key moment in the civil rights movement. And if we think about Moses, he's this amazing figure who foreshadows Jesus, what Jesus then came to do once and for all to set the captive, us, free. Um, but if we skip back to the very beginning, we can see three things that we often miss three beautiful hidden women and the ways in which they help this story be written. So firstly, witness the story of two women, Shifra and Pua, who I would guess are probably two of the least known women in the Bible. I had until recently not heard their names before, um, yet their roles are absolutely crucial in bringing about freedom. So back in Exodus 1, Moses is about to be born and with him a whole new chapter for God's plan for community and worship unfolding. But in place is a power-hungry ruler. He's ruthless, probably very insecure, and determined to limit the number of Hebrews in his country because he's scared that he'll lose power. So he orders all Hebrews to be rounded up and be put to work as slaves. And he orders all midwives across the country to murder at birth all um, boys. And then we meet Shifra and Pua, two professional midwives whose whole story hinges on this one single verse. Because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. Exodus 1:17. How they tricked Pharaoh into believing that they couldn't get to the mothers in time, so they were allowing babies to be born. And these two women, instead of being governed by fear, which I imagine was so real, they let their heart be moved. They chose not to accept the status quo and they actively rebelled against the darkness and the injustice. And by this secret decision, they let a woman give birth and a child live, and that child's name was Moses. So the whole Exodus story the whole freedom of a nation set in motion by these two courageous women, they literally deliver the deliverer. I like that. <laughs> um, and most of the time we skip over their names. We don't know their stories. We know very little about them. But they chose the way of hidden, holy, and wholehearted obedience, secret, small acts of courage with significance that has ripples for generations and generations. 
They used the spheres they existed in to question and disturb the foundations of an unjust society. So today, I'd love to ask us, what are the spheres of influence that make up our lives? Our families, our work, our spending, our hobbies. And where might God be calling us to choose the way of hidden obedience? So we love the midwives. And then we get on to chapter two, and we see the baton passed once again. And this time it's to Moses' mother. And at this point, we don't even know her name. Um, again, she was highly aware that she was living in a time that was desperately dangerous. Um, so she decides to hide her baby. Now, for those of you in the room who have children, who have been, been near anyone who has children, can you imagine it, day after day, nursing a newborn, willing him to be silent, praying every time that your baby boy starts crying, windows shut, doors shut, hot in the heat of the day, hoping that no one hears, fear every time you hear footsteps outside your front door, desperate, willing him to not cry, desperate that today isn't the day that you're going to be discovered. And she perseveres and she perseveres until we get to Exodus 2 verse 3, she couldn't hide him any longer. And at this point, she puts her boy in a basket, coated, in, uh, coated to protect it from water, and places him in the River Nile. And I can only imagine what it must mean for a parent to give up their child, her own dreams of keeping him safe, in the faith that actually that's the best way for him to live, an outrageous sacrifice that we'll probably never quite get our heads around. But in that, she, she knew that there was nothing more she could do to save him, but to trust God with what she'd been given, in the hope that restoration would come, in the knowledge that what was in her hands was God's anyway. I was really moved by this, and was thinking that if, if Shifra and Pua acted courageously out of their heart for justice, here we see Moses' mother giving courageously out of her heart for justice. And through this baby in a basket, God then demonstrated his love for the whole nations. Um, stunning. And then this final third person I'd love to bring from backstage into, into the front, into the limelight, is Pharaoh's daughter. So in chapter two, we meet her at the banks of the river. She hears the sound of a baby crying and we hear she felt sorry for it, she was, she was moved. And then there's something beautiful in this simple choice that she makes here, and the choice is to simply not look the other way. She's aware straight away that this child is a Hebrew child, not a member of her own family, a person she should, in human terms, have no connection to, no loyalty to, quite the opposite. Society would have told her to look the other way, to ignore the cries of those outside, to take care of your own. And yet she allows herself to be moved. And out of compassion and mercy, she takes in this baby as her own, risking the anger of her father, the Pharaoh. In the face of injustice today, and I imagine there's people in the room who are particularly burdened and moved for different areas of injustice. Maybe that's, maybe that's child trafficking, maybe that's um, declining climate, maybe that's racial injustice, homelessness, um, violence. It's so easy, and I work in this work, to look the other way, isn't it? 
Um, to be overwhelmed and feel helpless by the constant threat of news to just turn it off. But here we see Pharaoh's daughter allowing the cry of injustice to reach her ears. And though she doesn't know it at the time, she invites freedom in the form of Moses right into the hearts of the place where the laws of oppression were written. She reaches out across social boundaries and shows deep compassion. Um, and the story of Pharaoh's daughter particularly often reminds me in ways of my own hidden heroes, my parents. Um, my parents are farmers on the Isle of Man, and they're really involved in their local church, but not in the kind of obvious, fancy center stage way. They're always at the back. They're always hovering on the wings. They're always looking out for people who often people would look the other way from, uh, people who've often experienced real injustice, who are longing to turn their lives around in different ways. And at home, growing up, they create this space for people to simply come, uh, to be family amid chickens and other chaotic farmyard activities. Um, and they let this sometimes messy injustice, and you can romanticize that, it was often a real pain in the neck. I was like, who's this guy who's here for dinner? <laughs> I'm just doing my GCSEs. <laughs> um, but they let this messy injustice interrupt our lives as a family, and they let it come close, and they allowed their hearts to be moved. And I would say it's probably been their biggest pain, their biggest agony, and their biggest privilege in their whole life. I'm completely inspired by this kind of sacrifice and pray that one day we'll have a life marked by a similar willingness to be interrupted. So if, yeah, we see Shifra and Pua acting out of their heart for justice. We see Moses courageously giving out of her heart for justice. And here we see Pharaoh's daughter allowing herself to be interrupted. The plan to just allowing herself to be interrupted by the cries of injustice. And once again, God's freedom story kept alive by someone that we don't even know the name of, who we overlook. And I think it's really worth highlighting that each of these characters in Exodus are women, not because it's only women that have a role to play for fighting injustice, definitely not, but at the time, women were socially powerless. They were seen as property uh, they were not taken seriously in social, political, religious debate. Um, but what I love about then, however many thousand years later, Tim can tell me later, when Jesus enters the story, is that he's totally not phased by our ideas of who's significant or who's capable or who's qualified. Um, it means absolutely nothing to him. And when he walked on earth, he surrounded himself with the people on the fringes, didn't he? He's enough. And when we're with him, we can do extraordinary things. So I say this to my own heart as well. When I'm tempted to feel overwhelmed by the scale of injustice, underqualified in my role for addressing it, I try to remember that all Jesus asks for me is to come to him like that boy with the fish and the loaves with what's in my hands and allow him to do something extraordinary. Because while we look at the spotlight Jesus is at the margins. While we keep our eyes fixed on center stage, he's hovering at the wings. Um, and my prayer is this morning, as we encounter Jesus and his heart for justice, um, that we would also encounter his passion for each of us and his invitation 
to join him in this extraordinary vision. Because as we remembered, the very fact that Moses is available to set a nation free, that he goes on to part the Red Sea, all of these huge moments that we remember, um, that his people then experience miraculous provision, that they enter a place of rescue and of restoration, is due to the kindness, is due to the bravery and the faith of a whole series of other people. So as I begin to finish, and I'm going to get a couple of other voices involved, I just want to tell you about this amazing girl, Rajaswari. Um, now, a challenge. If you had to, could you memorize your route from home to work or from home to your local shop? Could you remember every single tree and signpost along the way? What if your family's freedom depended on you being able to remember those details? So, desperate for a way out, when Rajaswari was just 13, she attempted this. So she had been forced to work alongside her family in a brick kiln in India, and she was subjected to brutal violence and beatings, something that no child should ever have to experience. Um, and she and her family spent three exhausting years in these brick kilns. I don't know if anyone's been to a brick kiln before, but um, you can tr kind of imagine with the amount of dust in the air, your nose and your mouth are just full of dust. It's a miracle people even, even survive in there. Um, and despite being alerted to the situation by another hidden woman, Rajaswari's aunt, who'd been brought to safety in a nearby neighborhood and raised awareness about Rajaswari and her family, the police and IJM staff couldn't find her family because the kiln that they were in was surrounded by hundreds of other kilns. So there was just no way of telling which one that she was in. So determined to escape, Rajaswari courageously came forward and on behalf of the brick kiln decided to covertly survey, survey the area and draw a map, avoiding the slave owners. Um, and she drew this detailed map and managed, which is a whole maze of these kilns, hundreds of them, and then using a secret phone, she took a photo of it and sent the map to IJM. And thanks to her bravery, police were able to bring her family and a whole family, another family of five, including three young, young children, to safety. One of these women could barely walk, she was so ill, and one of the men was cradling an arm after a really particularly violent recent beating. And Today, I think we've got a picture of Rajaswari today. Today, she's 16. Um, she's really focusing on her education, wants to become a teacher. And she said this, she said, today, my dream are coming true one by one. We recently celebrated results from an external valuation that was done in India, which showed after 20 years of work collaborating with the government, we'd seen a remarkable 81.9% reduction in this kind of bonded labor slavery in the state of Tamil Nadu in India. This is miraculous breakthrough, which represents systemic change and millions of people having been protected. Um, but I think we so easily can get lost in these statistics, forgetting that is made up of thousands of stories like Rajaswari's, and behind each of these stories, I wonder how many hidden, secret acts of courage surround each one. It takes this whole movement. I wasn't, um, didn't know we were going to watch Godwin's story earlier, 
He's another amazing example of using his freedom to courageously go back to where he was exploited so that other children could be um, set free. It took Rajaswari's aunt, it took Rajaswari's drawing, took the police to rescue, investigators to gather evidence, social workers to walk with survivors, lawyers to stand up in court, government to have will to change, individuals funding the work, churches interceding and praying, each of us raising our voices, using influence. All those people, we have no idea what their names are, um, but they're each willing to act, to be interrupted, to give, to pray. Um, and I think there's a real challenge for us, isn't there, that the economy of God is totally upside down, that we actually don't have to shout about all the wonderful things that we do, um, because the God of the universe already knows them. And I wonder, if why the, I wonder if this is why we see so many of these stories throughout the scriptures of, of ordinary people doing courageous things, uh, people of faith who knew that they, God loved them, so they could make a stand secretly with nothing to prove. And then we see Jesus coming to earth later on in the freedom story, and he was radical, uh, did incredible miracles, and then told people not to tell anyone about them. This ultimate servant savior, ultimately dying so that we might live. One long, beautiful story of freedom. So today, maybe God is calling you to be like the midwives, to act faithfully in your workplace, to use your influence for good. And yeah, I'd be really happy to chat to you afterwards about what that looks like. Maybe God is calling you to be like Moses' mother, to give courageously what's in your hands. If you'd love to explore this, and there's some cards on your seats, and we've got a whole movement of freedom partners who are enabling this work month by month. Or maybe God's calling you to be like Pharaoh's daughter, allowing yourself to be interrupted, in some way letting those on the fringes of society get up close and a bit messy and personal in your life. Because God has always been looking to set the captive free. Um, he's also always looking for people to say, let my people go and join him in what he's doing. So in a moment, I'm gonna invite a couple of people up to share a bit about what that looks like for them, why they're passionate about this. Um, but before that, let's just take a moment to be still. Um, to let that sit, and I'm just gonna pray over us that God would lead us. Jesus, we long for a fresh encounter with you. Thank you that you always call us back to your heart for justice, that we're never too far gone. Thank you for your calling today. I just pray now that you would reveal what you're doing in each of our hearts and lives, that you'd bring both courage and a holy peace around what you're inviting us to do. Would that be rooted knowing who you are, what your story is, and who we are in you? I pray specifically for where there is weariness around injustice. Would you restore us and would you give us new sturdy stores of joy, new sturdy stores of hope? 
new vision. In your precious name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite up um, Bex and Liz and Alex. Um, and we're just going to hear a little bit about their stories and what this has looked like for them as I yeah, show you, bring some more hidden heroes into the, into the limelight. This is a nice official-looking panel section. I think we can move closer together. Um, I want, should we just, do you want to just briefly, let's go around and do you want to share who you are and why you're here, and then we'll get into the, into the good stuff. Sure, I'm Bex. I think most people know me. I'm part of this church family. Um, I work in tourism and first became aware, really, of how this looked in my industry. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex. Um, I'm obviously here because Zoe's here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, on this panel, because I'm also very passionate about justice and the work of IGM, and Zoe and I actually met working for IGM. I was the intern, and Zoe was... We don't need to go into this. <laughs> Zoe was my boss, and I married my boss, and I'm very, very proud about that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Um, hi, my name's Liz, and I uh, interned with IJM in 2015, and um, I guess that's probably why I'm here. <laughs> Great, thank you, Liz. And Liz just lives locally, so fun that she could join us today. Um, so, I wonder if... Basically, all three of you, the reason I wanted to hear a bit of your story is that you're really passionate about this, and you all live in very different contexts, and this has looked really different. I wanted to just give people ideas of what this has looked like for people and what that could look like in your lives. Um, Bex, do you want to start and just sharing why you're passionate about this? Sure. Um, yeah, I think I always knew that modern slavery was a thing, but I didn't really know much about it. And then um, through working in tourism, I just came across ways that it was actually there in sort of in plain sight really in in the industry i was working in which which really actually upset me because tourism is an industry for fun and relaxation and mm. joy but actually there was this awful kind of hidden crime you know in the background so just a couple of examples so um, there was a, a, an initiative to raise awareness of um, slavery in hotels um, so forced labor even you know cleaners in hotels for example that are um, it's hidden through sort of agency work, so you know the mm. hotel pays a legitimate agency, but then behind that there might be sort of hidden, um, yeah, people in forced labour being brought in a van every morning to be forced to clean in the hotel, you know that kind of thing. Um, I had a friend who also works in the travel industry who was um, on a plane back to the UK once and was very disturbed by the two people sitting next to her. Just didn't sit right with her. There was something really not right going on, and she alerted the cabin crew who alerted border force who intercepted them and it was a case of, wow. of trafficking so just that that can happen in plain sight I think um, and that you know it happens in the UK here too that the more I became aware of it you know that it's 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 here in car washes and nail bars and hotels like I say factories um, yeah and just something that I really want to be aware of and and sort of yeah make sure that I'm alert to it and, and able mm -hmm. to take action when I can. Mm, thank you. That's super helpful. And also, just as a, a side note on that, if, if there's ever... I sometimes become a bit suspicious of situations, but don't know if I like, back myself enough entirely to like, know that this is a situation of exploitation. If you just Google modern slavery helpline, there's a number that you can call, and they basically collate all um, requests made and all evidence given. And when there's kind of 
multiple pieces of evidence, they'll then take that to the police for further investigation. So if you don't back yourself enough to like fully want to go to the police about something, that's something that you can do, um, if that's helpful. Um, Liz, do you want to go next around? I'd love to hear, so you've interned back with, with IJM and then have done various other things. What does it look like for you to use what's in your hands to seek justice? Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I should have clarified that I'm not... I don't usually attend here, um, but I just feel so at home today that <laughs> I just glossed over that. Um, yeah, so my husband and I are uh, based in Bath, and we um, live in a boarding school um, uh, and go, up, go to Holy Trinity up the hill. But, um, yeah, so I interned with IJM in 2015. Um, I was sort of exploring what the next step post-university was and was just really blown away by uh, the reality of modern slavery that I wasn't exposed to that I hadn't been aware of um, and met an incredible body of people who were just so passionate about mm. the issue and determined to fight it um, and yeah since then I guess for me what it's looked like has been pursuing a, a career in law um, mm. and studies um, which haven't been straightforward but um, exploring from my perspective, um, in a commercial context, what role companies play mm. um, in the issue, what supply chains look like, um, how legal frameworks are well established uh, to protect those who have been oppressed and where there are gaps. Um, and so that's looked like working with companies um, in business and human rights consultancy mm. context uh, exploring the different tiers of supply chains and um, advising companies where mm. they can strengthen their human rights practices. Um, and I guess on a day-to-day -day level, what that also translates into is just the choices that yeah. you know, we can all make um, about what to buy in the supermarket, what clothes you're, you're choosing mm. um, to purchase. But yeah, I mean, IJM, interning with IJM was, was really a transformative experience mm. um, for me. That's mm. so great. Thank you, Liz. And Alex, what, apart from um, working with IJM, apart, uh, what has it looked like since then to champion justice with what spheres of influence you found yourself in? Yeah, I found my time at IJM really powerful and transformative. Um, particularly just um, IGEM's focus on systemic change, as you mentioned a few times in your talk, how whole countries, justice systems, political systems can be transformed through the work of, um, yeah, of rescuing people out of slavery and then training the lawyers, training the police, um, convicting those who are have the perpetrators and then the sort of cost-benefit analysis that slave drivers, slave drivers and other perpetrators will make um, then becomes too costly and then the whole system gets renewed um, and it becomes too dangerous and you get those amazing reductions of, of um, slavery and other exploitation that we've seen, which is just awesome. So having walked that a bit in, in the office in IJM and also went out to Bangalore with the, uh, Bangalore in South, Southern India with IJM in 2019, um, I yeah, then went on post-uni to work in politics and wanted to use the experience, the knowledge, the passion that I'd gathered through my encounters with IGM to see what I could do in um, trying to help 
those in modern slavery, both in the UK and around the world, and try and bring people to justice as well as helping transform justice systems. And ended up having a, a few different sort of jobs within politics, but one of which um, was uh, being a refugee and policy, refugee and migration policy advisor for a baroness in the House of Lords. And as many of you all know, there's been a slew of different migration bills going through Parliament over the last few years. And I um, was her speechwriter during that time, and so was able to weave in quite a lot of um, the focus on slaves and trafficking about the small boats bill and various bits of, of legislation that touched on those who might be vulnerable to exploitation. Um, I know that wasn't the focus of a lot of the bills, but thankfully the Baroness that I was working for was also keen on, on um, talking about those things. And so when my speech drafts would come in, they'd usually sort of push that, that part <laughs> of the, uh, the, the issue and um, wonderfully then was able to watch her at the House of Lords delivering those speeches, which included um, yeah, con continually pointing people to let's make sure we don't forget this part of migration as we're trying to stop the boats and do other things like that, um, which is important in many ways to also make